welcome to another exciting episode of Ghost Emoji with me, Taylor, and my friend, Becca. Me, Becca. I don't know why I was waiting for you to be like, Becca. I don't know. And every time you say hello, friends, you always sound like, friends? Like, are you my friends? Are we friends? I don't know you. I think we're about to have an episode where we have some swapped <laughs> personalities. Um... <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. Because okay. <laughs> we can't both be difficult. One of no, us no, has to be. We're all really good things. friends. I love each and every one of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for comedic effect. That uptick. <laughs> oh. Uh, this week, we are talking about near-death experiences, which there's a lot of stuff on, and we will try to keep it on track, because boy howdy, people have a lot to say about almost dying but not being dead. In the same way that we could find so little <laughs> on so many other things, like drop water droplet phenomena, uh, we found so much information on near-death experiences. I mean, a lot of it is real cheesy. But there's definitely a waterfall. Cover me in near-death experiences. It's a nacho <laughs> cheese waterfall. Well, what, what classifies a near-death experience, Becca? Oh, are you asking for the definition? Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, well, <laughs> a near-death experience, or an NDE, as, is a <laughs> personal experience associated with death or impending death. Such experiences may encompass a variety of sensations, including detachment from the body, feelings of levitation, total serenity, security, warmth, the experience of absolute dissolution, and the presence of a light. Mmm. 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 Aww. <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad. Nah. There's also a bunch of common traits that have been reported by near-death experiencers. Yeah, because I, I don't know, I was reading one thing that was like, no near-death experiences alike, but then I was like, I, I mean, a lot of them are very similar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not exactly the same, but they, they definitely had a couple of common, common motifs. Definitely. Because all of the, because um, I watched a bunch of YouTube documentaries on it. And it was just a lot of people being like, I just felt so safe and warm and I was enveloped in light. And I guess I shouldn't be an asshole about it. I mean, that's nice, but I don't know. I'm just pessimistic. So <laughs> the whole time I'm just like, your brain is just, it's just making it so it doesn't feel horrible to die. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. I like that they're also like a, a nice Southern woman. There were a lot of those. There were also some men who were like, there was this one guy who I guess used to be sort of like a, not Wall Street, but he was just sort of like, I don't know, an 80s businessman, that kind. One of those types. One of those types. He had a big and suit. <laughs> yeah. He he had one and he came back and now he like donates to charity. He volunteers his time. He stopped working with that. Like he totally changed his tune. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, near death experience is scary. You almost die. It's whatever but it also has done really good things for some people who needed a change i guess mm -hmm. that sounds like a good 90s movie yeah instead of your your bad businessman dad getting turned into a cat by christopher walken he could just have a near-death experience and turn his shit around yeah sadly that movie wasn't even from the 90s that was like last year oh yeah oh it was it was uh kevin spacey got turned into a cat how i don't Why? remember i think jennifer gardner was his wife or something it was just one of those things like it came on like a commercial for hulu or something and i made mark watch it and he died laughing he had an nde laughing <laughs> over uh i don't even remember what the movie was called like cat scratched or something stupid but good lord i thought kevin spacey was doing well what is he doing here the question is more what isn't he doing <laughs> It's like, now I can do what I truly care about. I've got all the money. I can take roles that I'm truly passionate about. Cat scratch fever. Sign me up. I never saw it and I never will. I didn't know it existed and now I feel <laughs> emptier for it. 
Oh, you can always go watch a preview for it on YouTube. And I think that I... that encapsulates a lot of what the movie uh, is about. I'll pass. Do you want to read off these common traits? I, I do. <laughs> I'm just going to do the uptick on the end of everything. A sense of uh, slash awareness of being dead. A sense of peace, well-being, and painlessness. <laughs> Positive emotions. A sense of removal from the world. Get me out of here. Bye-bye. Um, another one is out-of-body experiences. I feel like a lot of them where you like float up out of your dead body. Um, a perception of one's body from outside position, sometimes observing medical professionals performing resuscitation efforts, uh, a tunnel experience or entering darkness, a sense of moving up or through a passageway or staircase, 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 uh, a rapid movement toward and or sudden immersion in a powerful light or a being of light, I guess, pick your poison, uh, which communicates with the person, the near dead person. I feel like this one they've already said a couple times. An intense feeling of unconditional love and acceptance. We get it. Everyone likes you. Um, encountering beings of light, dressed in white. Also, the possibility of being reunited with deceased loved ones. Uh, receiving a life review, commonly referred to as seeing one's life flash before one's eyes. So, I didn't see as many, like, where they, like, saw it and someone else was judging it with them. Like, a la St. Peter. Or something like that. It's usually like they just get a quick flash of everything. It's um, not. It's not a Christmas Carol. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that one, he only got like you know three, three or four vignettes. Yeah, it wasn't the whole thing. They didn't have <laughs> just, time for that. Just the important stuff. Um, approaching a border or a decision by oneself or others to return to one's body, often accompanied by a reluctance to return, like that part in Grey's Anatomy when Meredith fell off the ferry or whatever and she had been drowned and she had to decide if she wanted to stay in the spooky, scary limbo hospital or go back to her body and make sweet lovemakings to McDreamy. What a choice. <laughs> She wasn't really that excited. They were having some issues. Their whole relationship is so up and down. It was. And at the, at the end, it was pretty up. And then it was real down. It was very down. Woof. Woof real, a doodle. Real, real down. <laughs> um, suddenly finding oneself back inside one's body. What? How many times they How say How did I get here? Uh, connection to the cultural belief held by the individual. Uh, which seemed to dictate some of the phenomena experienced in the NDE, and particularly the later interpretation thereof. Citation needed. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Kenneth Ring in 1980 subdivided the NDE on a five-stage continuum, and the subdivisions are... Oh, man, I completely, like, misunderstood this. Because his name is Kenneth Ring, I kept imagining it as an actual ring that you like plunge into so i was like which one's the most the outermost ring but that's just his last name oh god <laughs> i've had a, a lot of okay. pizza today so the first <laughs> the first stage is peace the second is body separation the third is entering darkness the fourth is seeing light and the fifth is entering the light he stated that 60% experienced stage one, feelings of peace and contentment, but only 10% experienced stage five, entering the light. Um, according to Alana Karen, the NDE stages resemble the so-called hero's journey. Ooh. Wow. Like like the, the Greeks? Is that where the hero's journey originally came from? I have actually no idea. I'm fine with that. I also have no idea. Someone more educated than us. Is Citation it? needed. Citation needed. To to us. We we need to know. Ryan would know, but he's not he's not eavesdropping right now, so Dang it. When we need him most, he's absent. Where is he? I don't know. Do you know where he is? He's in the bedroom listening to some, watching something. I don't know. Oh. Watching anime. I, I was like, hey, I gotta record and he was like, Alright, bye. He'd been listening bye. to very loud He's been listening to a lot of, like, sort of ambient space music the last couple mm. days, which is nice, but... Makes you tired? It makes me tired. Um, this is part of an interview that someone did with a man named 
Eben Alexander. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that. It's E-B-E-N. So I don't know if it's supposed to be Eben or Eben. Um, but it was from an article by Michael Shermer in the Scientific American. Alexander, uh, who wrote Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, uh, claims that he had an NDE when his cortex was shut down during a meningitis-induced coma. When asked how, if his brain was really non-functional, non-functional, he could have any memory of these experiences, given that memories are a product of neural activity, um, he responded that he believes the mind can exist separately from the brain. How? Where? I inquired. And this is from the point of the view of the person who wrote it. Although I also thought, how? Where? Uh, where was I? <laughs> that we don't know yet, he rejoined. Oh, do you want to play Eben Alexander and yeah, I can be sure? I'll, I'll be Eben Alexander. Also, it's, it's definitely pronounced Aben. No, I'm just kidding. I'm so sorry, Mr. Alexander. Dr. Alexander. You're not forgiven. <laughs> uh, the fact that mind and consciousness are not fully explained by natural forces, however, is not proof of the supernatural. In any case, there is a reason they are called near-death experiences. The people who have them are not actually dead. Ba-na-na. Da-na-na. You're welcome. I wish I wish I had like that noise effect on my phone. So just anytime I I drop some some real truth, it starts playing the the X Files theme. That was my. I tried real hard. I knew what you were doing. That's good. Uh, in Alexander's trip to heaven, he was in a place of clouds, big, puffy, pink, white ones that showed up sharply against the deep blue black sky. Higher than the clouds, immeasurably higher, flocks of transparent, shimmering beans arched across the sky, leaving long, streamer-like lines behind them. Oliver Sacks compares this to hallucinations induced by migraines, like the ones he had suffered from for a long time, where he saw a shimmering light that was dazzlingly bright. It expanded, becoming an enormous arc stretching from the ground to the sky with sharp, glittering, zigzagging borders and brilliant blue and orange colors. Sachs concluded that the one most plausible hypothesis in Dr. Alexander's case, then, is that his NDE occurred not during his coma, but as he was surfacing from the coma and his cortex was returning to full function. So, I like that one just because we were kind of talking earlier about how sometimes it's hard, like, depending on, like, who's reporting on it, you know, information about NDEs, there isn't a whole lot of it that's, like, solid provable fact a lot of it is anecdotal and stuff like that and so depending on how the person leads like theologically you know they tend to kind of use it to argue for the case of whatever their personal belief system is Mm -hmm. and so even though they're really interesting I think we put more stock in the scientific like recounting of doctors and stuff like that but here you've got Alexander who's a neurosurgeon but still, after having experienced this, thought this was, like, absolute proof that heaven existed. Yep. It's hard because, like, with every example that you're given, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Because most of the people who firmly believe that near-death experiences are, like, proof that there's an afterlife or proof that the mind exists beyond the brain or, like, proof of a soul... Um, they so want to believe it that oftentimes I watched a, uh, I actually watched a documentary or not documentary, but it was like some sort of, um, meeting or something. And it was all psychologists and they were talking about and giving examples. They were like, you know, this, this proves that it can't be anything else. And it's like, no, it, it, it proves that that's a possibility, but it doesn't, it's not an absolute truth. Like Mm -hmm. even the, you know, the idea of the neurological misfirings. We don't know enough about the human brain to say, like, this is the complete, the absolute truth. Like, it's still, we just don't know enough about any of it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's confirmation bias, unfortunately, in a lot of uh, instances with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. The only part that I couldn't find very many examples of, but I know that there have been, is that most of them tend to be good experiences or at least like kind of calm, like neutral experiences. Mm -hmm. But you don't hear very many about people like thinking they've gone to hell 
but sometimes they do. Yeah, there were a handful that were like, I've seen what hell looks like. Because most people, like you were saying, it was positive experiences, and then they're like, not afraid of death. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm excited to die, because it'll, you know, not excited, <laughs> but like, I don't fear it. Like, I know it's going to be peaceful. Yeah. But even then, like you're talking about with confirmation bias, the frightening experiences a lot of times you hear that and they'll be like well no see you were gonna go to hell and now you've got to turn your life around instead yeah. of just being like well you know most other people whatever they've got in their brain like that unconscious lizard brain that when they're dying and it's firing off all this stuff they're seeing a tunnel your brain was like demons you don't get the tunnel i'm gonna show you a big old demon De- demons best demon i can i can cook up don't you, I I hear you are afraid of holes. How about <laughs> demons popping out of holes? Oh, you you like that? Favorite. No. You like that? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so confirmation bias. It says a significant number of NDEers or near-death experiencers indicated that the experience had a life-changing effect on them. Additionally, there have been reports that NDEers have problems making watches stop, look younger, and gain psychic abilities, healing powers, or prophetic visions afterwards, although none of these effects have been substantiated. That was a nice, like, little afternote being like, they say they can, but... Can they? <laughs> they, they say they can. Let's just let them have it. They've had a rough day. They almost died. I mean, like... I liked owls before the owl craze of 2008. Does that make me prophetic? Or does that just mean that I'm ahead of the times? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. What do you think about the whole thing where owls are actually aliens disguising themselves as owls so that we don't recognize them? I've never heard of that. You've never heard of that? But it frightens me and I don't like it (laughs) because it sounds plausible. (laughs) Why did you tell me that? Because I thought you knew about it. And I honestly, when you started talking about that, I thought you were going to be like, I love owls. Does that mean that I love aliens? Because I do. (laughs) You know, they just want to be able to be among us and observe us without alarming us. Except we're on to their game. So now whenever I see an owl, I'm just like, I see you. I was talking more about the owl decor. Man, that was big. It was it was nowhere and then it was everywhere. And by that time I was done. I was like, I don't I'm over it. I couldn't find it for the longest time and now I'm done. <laughs> what are we in the middle of now? I feel like there was a really big like pineapple craze Ugh. in the past year or so. We went through donuts. That was o- that's over now. Pineapples. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the next one is. Taco Bell. Taco Bell. By the way, everyone, I received an email from Forever 21 alerting me that my <laughs> two interests had collided in a beautiful and hideous lovemakings. Oh, God. That's right. There's a Taco Bell line at Forever 21. You can have a shirt that says, too much sauce. It also, you can get a bodysuit that's a hot sauce. Um, you could get a hoodie that has just the Taco Bell logo over and over and over on it. Uh, a windbreaker that's the iconic purple, yellow, and what's the other color? Red, I think? Maybe. Get on that. Forever 21 and Taco Bell, hit me up for sponsorship. I will wear all of it, just (laughs) if you pay me. That was another thing that I definitely... My brain didn't go to the right spot at first when you emailed, emailed me. When you texted me about that... I was like, but what is Taco Bell going to sell that has to do with Forever 21? Like, I was trying to think how they could turn that into a food instead of how Forever 21 was just going to use that branding to make clothing items. Hideous. Hideous (laughs) clothing items. They are not cute. Uh, I love Taco Bell, but I don't know if I would wear any of that. No. Unless I get, like, free T-Bell for life. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you guys want to give me free Taco Bell and then, yeah, I'll wear your hideous clothes. I'll be all over it. Live Moss. Live Moss. I wish they had, if they had made a shirt that said, I want to live Moss, I would have bought it. Because you know I love to say that. I know you do. That's why I love to say it. Because of you. You're welcome. Moving on. Let's talk about Sam Parnia and the AWARE study. This is one of my favorite parts. I heard about it at first 
um, actually listening to another podcast that was talking about near-death experiences. It was Ono, Ross, and Carrie doing like a guest special on Sawbones, which are both podcasts I really like. So it was, I liked seeing them come together and make this little love baby about near-death experiences. But they talked about this in it, and I went and looked up more stuff about it afterwards. But uh, Sam Parnia is a British assistant professor of medicine at the Stony Brook University School of Medicine. Um, he is also a director of research into cardiopulmonary resuscitation, um, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I guess that kind of led him to be known for his work on near-death experiences and cardiopulmonary resuscitation because he kind of put them together. Um, he's advocated for the use of the term actual death experience instead of near-death experience to describe human experiences that occur during a period of cardiac arrest. Um, he has stated that contrary to perception, death is not a specific moment, but a, t a potentially reversible process that occurs after any severe illness or accident causes the heart, lungs, and brain to cease functioning. If attempts are made to reverse this process... It is referred to as cardiac arrest. However, if these attempts do not succeed, it is called death. Um, he has mostly studied those who have had no heartbeat and no detectable brain activity for periods of time and believes cardiac arrest is the optimal model for uh, to help understand the human experience of death. Um, back in 2001, he and his colleagues published the results of a year-long study of cardiac arrest survivors. 63 were interviewed. Uh, seven had memories of times when they were unconscious, and four had experiences that, according to the study criteria, were near-death experiences. Um, Out-of-body claims were tested by placing figures on suspended boards facing the ceiling, not visible from the floor. Um, so basically, like, if they had an out-of-body experience, they should have been able to see these figurines that they had put on, like, high shelves in the rooms where they had uh, gone into cardiac arrest. Um, but no conclusions could be drawn due to the small number of subjects because that was only 63 people. And out of those, I think they said only four of them would even really qualify for that. Um, da -da -dun -dun -dun. He actually did a study based on somebody else's work. Uh, his name was Bruce Grayson. And he had tried to do something similar to this, um, but he would project an image in the room to see if they could recall it. The people who were having an NDE. Um, Things like a red house, a blue rabbit, stuff that would be like pretty easy to identify, um, but that would not be there for any other reason other than being projected up on the ceiling after they had been uh, put under anesthesia. Um, no one remembered during the procedures. Heart surgeries where hearts needed to be stopped. Um, it only happened for a few seconds and the person was usually under anesthesia, which they think can actually interfere with memory creation. So you're less likely to have an NDE if you were under anesthesia, I guess, when it happened. Parnia was the principal investigator of the AWARE study, which was launched back in 2008. Um, it went for four years, so it concluded in 2012 and included 33 investigators across UK, Austria, and the USA, um, and it tested consciousness, memories, and awareness during cardiac arrest. They tested the visual and auditory awareness using specific tests, like installing the shelves, uh, bearing a variety of images facing the ceiling, similar to the one they did before, but this one had a much bigger pool of people. Uh, they put him in rooms where cardiac arrest patients were more likely to, uh, to be staying in and to go into cardiac arrest. Um, the result of the studies were published in 2014, um, and it was a really big deal because people were like, you know, this is one of the biggest studies that's ever been done about specifically this type of near-death experience. And so there was a lot of articles of people kind of talking about what the results mean. I have a whole big paragraph about <laughs> everything that happened, but basically no one saw the images accurately, which was a big bummer because they put all this work into it, but no one out of the ones that saw. There was like over 2,000 cardiac arrest events, 101 patients, um, only 9% of them could be classified as near-death experiences. Um, two of those uh, described seeing and hearing actual events related to the period of cardiac arrest, but they were in rooms that were not in the areas with the ceiling shelves or whatever, and then the other people that were in rooms that could didn't see the images. So after all that, it 
And I mean, of course, this was just recounting for the out-of-body experience type NDE, but mm-hmm. it was it was kind of a bummer. But at the same time, I loved how much work they put into it and how thoroughly it came back with nothing. That's a bummer because a lot of the examples that I've, I've heard in um, the, the YouTube video where it was um, psychologists talking about studies and stuff and um, giving examples... They gave one of this woman who I'd actually seen interviewed. They had to stop her heart in order to, oh, she, I think she had, oh, no, she was having brain surgery. It was like major brain surgery. And so they were going to have to basically like put her in cardiac arrest in order to get to the tumor that was in her brain. She had an out-of-body experience and a near-death experience. And basically when she went under, they cover the body like completely in brain surgery except for the part the like one little part that they're working on on the skull Mm -hmm. and um the doctor was even interviewed and he was talking about and he was like it was really weird because when she came out she you know eventually started talking about the fact that she had like heard us talking about in the middle of the surgery we couldn't get they were trying to get something into an artery in her leg and they couldn't because it was too narrow and so they had to go through another place in her groin Mm-hmm. And she apparently heard that. She saw um, the tool that he was using to, um, like, open up her skull, the saw. Because he had said saw, and so she had imagined it would be a saw. But when she she was talking about how when she saw it, like, from above, she was like, it looked like an electric toothbrush. And so I didn't understand, like, what that, like, you know, it wasn't a saw. And mm-hmm. um, then they showed what the actual tool looks like. And it does look like that. And they were like, you know, when she was wheeled in, there's all of that's covered. There's no way she would have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, this and that. She's never, you know, looked into those things. She had no interest in it because she apparently didn't believe in that sort of stuff. She was like, I'd never even considered it. I didn't even know what it was until I had it. So, I mean. Well, that's what the whole point of this one where they were trying to use that as like a way to, I guess, prove or disprove it. Yeah. Another example I heard about one time that was interesting, but then of course no one like properly documented was um, someone who I guess was having an NDE, like an out of body one and had like risen up out of the hospital and like been above the hospital. But then when they came back down, they were like, I saw a shoe on the, you know, on the roof of the hospital. And then, you know, apparently, like, someone went up and was like, there is a shoe. Oh, that's too random. That, <laughs> But no one, no one, like, took a picture or took anyone with them or anything like that. And it was just like, mm. Yeah, the only reason that I was sort of like, man, this is weird, was just because she seemed very, like, surprised by it. And so did the doctor. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I mean, either they're collaborating <laughs> or... I, don't I was going to say maybe it was one of those things like where the anesthesia doesn't like work appropriately and so she could hear them, but that wouldn't account for her seeing. Well, the other thing is she wasn't under. She was dead. Like they put her into oh. cardiac arrest. Like she was like clinically brain dead and her heart was stopped when they were doing it. Oof. So that's why they were like, that was not at the beginning. That was like deep into it. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was weird. Weird. Yeah, that was the only one where I was like, I got a little bit of the shivers. No, I mean, that's a good, that's a good example. Mm-hmm. But it's anecdotal. Yeah. It's anecdotal. Yep. There's no, like, hard proof. But I mean, it's it's hard to plan for that, too. It's like... Well, I think that's why they were trying to focus on people who were going to have to be put into cardiac arrest, because they were like, oh, if they're going to have it, like, these are people who are, like, clinically dead. Might as well try. Um, we also have another example which is The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven. This is uh, 2010. According to his own account, Alex Malarkey, <clears throat> it's foreshadowing, <laughs> says that he and his father were driving on a highway near Rush, Sylvania. Yep, Rush, Sylvania. What a beautiful name. Ohio, when his father turned onto another road and was hit by a car, which he did not see behind a blind hill. After the automobile accident, he says he saw his father fly out of the window of his car, only to be caught by an angel and carried to safety. He says he was out of his body while he saw this happen. His body was taken to a hospital in an emergency helicopter. The book says that soon after that he felt an angel take him through the gates of heaven, which he describes as being tall, to meet Jesus and Satan, who appeared through a hole in heaven. After he woke up in the hospital, 
Oh, after he woke up in the hospital, he told his family his account of his near-death experience. Uh, Tyndale House promoted the book as a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God. I guess I should have stated that this was a... It, it, was, it was like a book. Yeah, it was a book written on... Based on his experience, based on I guess. His experience, yeah. In yeah, I think his dad co-authored it with like someone else so it was like not fully like ghost written his dad like sort of helped i guess mm-hmm. and he was pretty young when this happened i didn't write down the actual age i guess but he was right. he was a young boy alex forcefully disavowed the book in an open letter to christian bookstores almost five years after it was published and more than a million copies were sold describing his near-death experience as a fabrication as a result tendale house removed the book from print and christian bookstores removed it from their shelves yeah he felt like you could tell he felt pretty guilty about it because he was like i was kind of you know coerced it's not real but at the same time he was like you know if it's helped people like i don't want to detract from that but uh I didn't experience these yeah. things. Or it might have been, I can't remember if it was that he, like, had something kind of like it, but that it was, like, greatly exaggerated. But either way, he was just like, nope, nope, this it's didn't happen. It's good that he came clean, though. I mean, I know that's hard, but it's good that he did. Yeah, I think he probably feels a lot better. Probably just makes him feel better just being like, yeah, that's... Because if, even if it's something that is going to, like, help people you know, like, feel better about their lives or, like, make a change or something, you still feel bad if it's under, like, a an untrue premise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It reminded me a little bit of, this was an anecdote um, and, like, an example that the psychologists were giving. Basically, this little boy uh, who I think is, like, 18 now, but at the time he was, like, three, he was drawing, um, like, planes and stuff and they were always like crashing and he talked about basically near-death experiences and um the idea of like reincarnation and stuff are kind of closely linked Mm -hmm. and it was basically about this boy who was telling his parents like you know this was my plane i went down in blah like it was weird because he like knew the types of planes and he was only like two or three and or the type of plane he had wrote in and like the location and where it had happened and then they did all this research into it and they found out that there was a guy that was named what the little boy had said and it was crazy like i wish i had more like of the actual information but like that gave me the shivers too because it was just the idea of like a little kid having so much information because it wasn't just like one-off little things it was like he was constantly talking about it and he was talking mm-hmm. about like the area because i think it was during the during the 40s yeah it was it was during world war Two. i don't know it was just it was crazy and it was creepy and that was the only guy who died like the guy he was claiming to be essentially as like a four-year-old was the only mm-hmm. person who died in this one like specialized mission his like plane i guess misfired or something went wrong and uh he ended up drowning and it's just weird (laughs) like the whole the whole thing was weird what was he doing in the years between like the 40s and and when he was four again i don't know that was i i was wondering that too i was like what what happens like if this is you know possibly real like how does that work you know like but how do we know that his parents didn't just like have that information and they were like no he he drew this and he's been telling us about it we don't that's the thing because it's definitely interesting we should do an episode on past lives i would love to i think that that would be really fun and interesting and maybe i can find that same story and actually like talk about it coherently (laughs) Yeah, because sometimes, like, I I really like hearing about stuff like that. Well, not like it, I guess, but I think it's interesting. But just the, the whole thing where I'm like, whenever the parents are like, look what our amazing child has done. I'm like, did you do some online research? And then be like, all right, Jimmy, draw a picture of a spooky plane for mommy. Well, apparently, like, we're going on Ellen. The way they talked about it, it sounded like they denied it and thought it was kind of weird. They were just like, oh, we don't know what he's talking about. It was just little kid stuff. I don't know. And then finally it got to the point where they were like, maybe it's real. <laughs> but, I mean, they could also have just been like, I want to get on Ellen. So, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, moving on. We have some possible explanations. 
And by possible explanations, there's, uh, I did a lot of research on, well, not a lot, but like, I went into, there was this guy, he was on neardeath.com, Dr. David Sanfilippo. Um, he basically wrote kind of like, he broke down all the ways that different religions experience near-death experiences and kind of like, obviously it's not, you know, every person of this religion who has a near-death experience is going to have the same whatever. It's just sort of like a generalization, sort of. It's just interesting. So let's start off with agnostics and atheists. Um, for those who don't know, agnostics believe it is uh, not, I don't know if I would say agnostics believe it's impossible to know whether there's a god or life after death, because I'm agnostic. I just feel like I don't know, and I don't feel comfortable saying I know. Atheists believe there is no god and no life after death, and that death is the cessation of the existence of the individual. So once you're dead, you're dead. Um, <clears throat> agnostics and atheists have reported having near-death experiences, but these experiences are similar to the reports of individuals who have professed a spiritual belief prior to their near-death experience, according to Moody. But Moody, like, something to take with a grain of salt is Moody was trying to basically confirm that there's heaven. Like, he had very Christian leanings, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, between, like, him, Rawlings, and I don't know what Ring felt, but Moody and Rawlings, a lot of their stuff that I've read seems like they... Kind of like what the end of this little section says, where they would take anything and bend it towards, like, they afterwards, you know, became extremely religious because of their near-death experience. And I'm like, or how does he say, he says he did not know of any agnostic or atheist individual who, after this, didn't become religious. And I'm like, uh, uh, I mean, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but I do think it's interesting, I guess, that according to this study that they had, like, similar ones like even if they don't believe in it it's in their brain enough that when they're having this experience that that's what they see is similar to people who who do have a religious background it says they reported achieving an altered state of consciousness in which they experience some or all of the traits that moody attributes to a near-death experience uh, most agnostics and atheists interpret their near-death experience as a glimpse glimpse of life after death uh prior to the near-death experience they did not believe in a life after death as a result of the experience most agnostic and atheist experiencers eventually move towards a more spiritually guided life with a newfound belief in life after death i don't <laughs> believe that i believe like of course there probably were a few who were like maybe there is a god and i could see a couple of them being feeling more spiritual or maybe feeling like mm -hmm. you know what i mean but i don't feel like Saying most agnostic and atheist experiencers. That's very. Is, I feel like misleading. that's a little general. <laughs> but this is all according to Moody and Rawlings. And Moody, he wrote his stuff in the 77, and Rawlings wrote his in 78. So, you know, there's also. That was a long time ago. So I can imagine, like, a more up to date version maybe would have less heavy Christian leanings, but I, I don't know. But, anyways, moving on. Um, let's see, the next one we've got is for Buddhism and Hinduism, which I was kind of, I don't know why they put these two together specifically. I don't know. Um, the difference in Buddhist and Hindu reports of near-death experience is predominantly associated with the afterlife setting and the personages they experience reporting, uh, or the experiencer encounters after. They may report different interpretations of the specifics of their experience, um, but they are consistent with other stages, traits, uh, constellations, and group types reported by near-death experiencers in other cultures and religions. Um, some members of the Buddhist and Hindu religions interpret near-death experiences as providing afterlife visions, similar to visions ascribed to some Eastern religious experiences associated with death and afterlife. The ancient Japanese Buddhist meditative and deathbed visions closely parallel modern American near-death and deathbed visions. Um, and then we talk a little bit about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, it describes the bardo, which is the three stages of the transitionary disembodied state following death. Uh, the first stage, the departed have visions of the blinding clear light of pure reality. In the second stage, the departed encounter a succession of deities. In the third stage, the departed is judged based upon past deeds by the Dharma Raja, king and judge of the dead. Um, and that's all based on, I guess, a book written by Groff and Groff in 1980. 
Um, these stages are similar in content to other reported near-death experiences from other religious uh, religions and cultures. Uh, these similarities include a movement through levels, um, passing through tunnel, visions of pure light, meeting incorporeal beings, powers of astral projection or out-of-body experiences, and um, a judgment about one's life. And something else to like keep in mind is that near, like near-death experiences or like people experiencing some sort of like coming back and thinking that they've seen heaven or seen you know a glimpse of the afterlife it goes back to like ancient times like apparently there are things on cave paintings in like different places and it's just it's recorded in so much of history that like some of some religious texts could be influenced by you know stories that have been passed down like it i mean you know Mm -hmm. so no there's a lot i like that there are so many like across different cultures Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting that there are some that have similarities between them there was one i heard about actually i think they talked about it in that podcast that i listened to but it was native american near-death experience where it was a man who was like killed during a hunt and he wasn't aware that he was dead, so he was trying to follow, like, the rest of the hunters back home, and then when he got there, like, everyone's ignoring him and, you know, can't seem to hear him or see him, and then finally he has the realization that he's dead, but then, like, goes back to his body and, like, jumps back in and then comes back kind of thing. So, not that that's specific to, you know, any Native American spirituality or, like, religious believings, But it was just the fact that it was, you know, a long time ago and they're still having it then and that it kind of showed like a difference between what you usually hear about where they're like, I know I'm dead. I'm in a tunnel. I can't hear you. (laughs) I mean, some of this is like shaped by your concept of the world and your experiences and the things that you've like media you've consumed and. Uh, Mm -hmm. that's why i was kind of surprised when that one lady was like i've never even heard of a near-death experience before and i'm like yeah okay you probably have you bet you don't have a tv either i don't watch television maybe she didn't but (laughs) i'm just saying that it's one of those things that even if you go out of your way to like not you know know anything about it i feel like you would have seen it somewhere in a movie in a song in a book somewhere they would have told you about it barbara Carol. <laughs> um. <laughs> We're glad you're back among the living, Carol. I'm sorry. I just, I got saucy for a second. Too much sauce. Too much sauce. <laughs> you can, you, now you can wear that. You can wear that shirt. I don't want to. I did think it was relevant because literally we'd been to Taco Bell the night before and that guy gave us too much sauce. Way too much sauce. Way too much. We were drinking. And no napkins. It. No napkins, only sauce. Wash your <sighs> hands in this hot sauce. I can't. It hurts. And then Cherie filled your shoes with them. And my purse. And your purse. She was just trying to help. She just didn't want you to starve to death if you got stuck in your car. She was being extremely extra that day. She was. (sighs) Anyways, moving on to Islam. Um, (laughs) Muslims have reported having near-death experiences, according to Flynn from 86 and Rawling 78. Um, Their near-death experiencers report seeing and meeting recognizable spirits. Um, And this conforms with the Islamic tradition that the souls of the faithful in paradise welcome the incoming souls and with other reports of visions of people awaiting the newly deceased. Um, In Muslim near-death experiences, the being of light is identified as Allah, whereas in other religions, the light might be identified as God. Um, Some Muslims interpret the near-death experience as a possible glimpse into life after death due to the similarity of the experience with the religious visions of Muhammad and their expectations of life after death. In Islamic myth, describes Muhammad's night journey as his experience of passing through the realms of the afterlife where he can encounter spirits who have died, has a vision of heaven and hell, and communes with Allah. And that's um, from Coliano in 91, Groff and Groff in 80, and Zaleski in 87. Woohoo! I love 87. That's when I was born. I I got away to year. Yeah, I feel special because there's so many 88s, but there's only like a bunch of other 87s yeah (laughs) it's just you and those other millions (laughs) i don't know them i'm the only one and everyone else 
Barbara Harris, uh, who is Jewish, reported having several near-death experiences since 1975. Um, and in her book, which I guess came out in 1990, uh, it's called Full Circle, The Near-Death Experience and Beyond. Um, it's a narrative of Harris's near-death experiences. Uh, Jewish people who have had near-death experiences are often similar um, to the experiences of other, other religious spiritual believers. During the near-death experience, they talk about being in the presence of a being of light and judging their own lives, which I guess instead of the being of light judging it. Yeah. Um, this experience is similar to the Jewish belief that what is important in life is the attending to the responsibilities of, a, of living a meaningful, productive life. Many near-death experiencers report being met by family members, um, and these are reports that are consistent with the Jewish belief that after death they will be re- reunited with family members in heaven. Which sounds nice. Yeah. I prefer that over uh, the Christianity one or the Christian one where it's like, I guess it depends because there's so many different sects of Christianity. But like the one I was always taught is like, oh, no, you won't recognize anybody in heaven. And I was like, well, then what's the fucking point? So, yeah, you're sorry. Just, <laughs> there's no meeting up with your your pets and your grandma and stuff. It's all praising Mr. Jesus and Mr. God. And I was like, but I, I want, but I want to see my family. I thought that was like the whole point is like they're up in heaven, walk like looking down on you. And I'm like, apparently they don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> so because it's all yeah. about just just praising once you get up there. So my feelings on Christianity are slam dunk it in the garbage. <laughs> oh god, no offense, but full. I was offense. gonna say, okay, we, we've swapped again. Yep. Becca's back to being like, everybody get out. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a lot of feelings about Christianity. Enjoy your new home in the sewers. <laughs> Anyways, this is so long, but I feel like we all kind of know what, because Christians are loud about it. Um, <laughs> Not all Christians are. I know. God, I'm sorry. I was raised fucking Southern Baptist, so I have a lot of feelings about Christianity, and I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, let's not talk about it. Okay. Some Christians, I should not have had this section. Some Christians <laughs> refute the near-death experience as being a demonic deception. Which I, I thought this part was kind of interesting because I... After everything we've read, they were like, no, it's proof that the afterlife exists and that heaven is real. And then this part's like, no, it's demons. It's definitely demons. I'm not surprised. (laughs) They believe the entire near-death experience is a trick of Satan to pull believers from the teachers of Christianity and lead them into sin. Just like dinosaur bones. (laughs) According to Harper in 1992. Other Christians interpret the near-death experience as a glimpse of an after-death state that may exist prior to the afterlife judgment by God. Uh, near-death experiences and experiences similar to the altered state of the near-death experiences are recorded in the holy bible Um, these experiences are not reported as being evil or sinful the scripture writers have recorded visions of bright lights uh, life reviews the presence of unconditional love of god and visions of heaven and hell from biblical individuals who have been close to death Um, in the apostle paul's letters letter to the corinthians do you say apostle yeah it's apostle okay in the apostle paul's letters to the corinthians excuse me for not knowing christian terminology you said you were raised southern baptist i I hated it so i did not listen okay paul records a vision he had this vision resembles the content of a near-death experience it involves paul being taken up to heaven for a visit and hearing things so astounding that they are beyond man's power to describe or put in words and yet he did um near-death experiencers consistently report the difficulty of verbalizing what they experience the effect of this experience on paul was a personal confirmation and assurance of his work according to flynn in 86 to many experiencers the Near-death experience affirms the uniqueness and centrality and indispensability of Christ. But in a universalistic... God, why is he... Okay. Tongue twisters in a universalistic way that does not negate or diminish the value of other religious traditions. Aww. He found that following a near-death experience, the Christian experiencer gravitated towards a religious worldview... They may incorporate and yet transcend the traditional Christian perspective. All of these were a little wordy. I feel like I've said religious, experiencer, 
and like a handful of other words. I'm like, if this was a drinking game, we'd all be dead. Mm-hmm. We would all be having a near-death experience. <laughs> uh, let's see. And then the last one we have is on Mormonism. Um, according to Lundahl, uh, I guess on comments from 1982, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints report a high number of death near-death experiences per capita of their religion. The high number of reported near-death experiences is probably due to the social values of the Latter-day Saints, which encourages individuals to share their near-death experiences much more openly than most other social groups. Um, Mormons interpret near-death experiences to be part of their religious beliefs and a glimpse of life after death. Also, if you are any of these religions, if you fall into these categories and you disagree, Take it up with Dr. David Sanfilippo from www.neardeath.com. There's a dash between near and death. Please fight him if you want to. I would pay to see it. Yeah, this a lot of them I do feel like it's treating each religion as like a monolith of people instead yeah. of individual experiences. Yeah, but again, I mean, I'm sure for what we're trying to do and talk about in like an hour, it would have been difficult to go through and and do it so i guess it's just a generalized version of like based on their beliefs this is what they see yeah which is Um, fine the other possible explanation is the science part which um neuroscience research suggests that an nde is a subjective phenomenon resulting from disturbed bodily multisensory integration that occurs during life-threatening events ndes are a recognized part of some transcendental and religious beliefs in an afterlife, but they believe that a surge of electrical activity in the brain could be responsible for the vivid experiences described by near-death survivors. Um, A study carried out on dying rats found high levels of brainwaves at the point of the animal's demise, and U.S. researchers said that in humans, this could give rise to a heightened state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. The lead author of the study, Dr. I'm going to butcher this. Jimo uh, Borjigan of the University of Michigan said, A lot of people thought that the brain after clinical death was inactive or hypoactive with less activity than the waking state, and we show that's definitely not the case. If anything, it is much more active during the dying process than even the waking state. To find out more, scientists at the University of Michigan monitored nine rats as they were dying. In the 32nd period after the animal's heart stops beating, they measured a sharp increase in high-frequency high frequency brain waves called gamma oscillations. These pulses are one of the neuron, neuronal features that are thought to underpin consciousness in humans, especially when they help to link information from different parts of the brain. In the rats, these electrical pulses were found at even higher levels just after the cardiac arrest than when the animals were awake and well. Um, Dr. Borjigan said it was feasible that the same thing would happen in the human brain and that an elevated level of brain activity and consciousness could give rise to near-death vision. The fact that they see light perhaps indicates the visual cortex in the brain is highly activated and that we have evidence to suggest this might be the case because we've seen increased gamma in area of the brain that is right on the top of the visual cortex. We've seen increased coupling between the lower frequency waves and the gamma that has been shown to be a feature of visual awareness and visual sensation. However, she said that to confirm the findings, a study would have to be carried out on humans who have experienced clinical death and have been revived. Commenting on the research, Dr. Jason Braithwaite of the University of Birmingham said the phenomenon appeared to be the brain's last hurrah. Um, That's a scientific term. (laughs) Yes. It's a very neat demonstration of an idea that's been around for a long time, that under certain unfamiliar and confusing circumstances like near death, the brain becomes overstimulated and hyperexcited, he said. Like a raging fire through the brain, activity can surge through brain areas involved in conscious experience, furnishing all resultant perceptions with realer than real feelings and emotions. But he added one limitation is that we don't know when, in time, the near-death experience really occurs. Perhaps it was before patients had anesthesia, or at some safe point during an operation before, long before cardiac arrest. However, for those instances where experiences may occur around the time of cardiac arrest or beyond it, these new findings provide further meat to the bones of the idea that the brain drives these fascinating and striking experiences. And then Dr. Chris Chambers of Cardiff University said, This is an interesting and well-conducted piece of research. We know precious little about brain activity during death, let alone conscious brain activity. 
These findings open the door to further studies in humans, but we should be extremely cautious before drawing any inclusion, conclusions about human near-death experiences. It is one thing to measure brain activity in rats during cardiac arrest, and quite another to relate that to the human experience. And that was an article by Rebecca Morell, a science reporter for BBC World Service on August 13th, 2013. So, basically... The reason that I tend to lean more towards science is because I feel like they're never going like, this is definitely, this is definitely, it can't be anything else. It's definitely this. They're like, well, we don't actually know enough about the brain yet to say it's definitely one thing or the other, but it could, it's plausible that it's this. And I appreciate that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. And unfortunately, I just don't think we're at the point where we know enough about anything to really know whether it's true or not. Mm-hmm. I lean more towards probably not, but I'm also agnostic, so. I think I the the whole thing with, I don't know, the brain activity and hallucinations and stuff like that, where it feels so real, but but it isn't. I do think it's a way for the brain to kind of like calm you down, show you something nice. It's kind of like a... a not self-anesthesia, but just, like, a way to kind of... Self-soothe. Yeah, you know, just something to help you out when you're going through something. If not actually painful, like, if you're under anesthesia and you're you're dying, you might not actually feel it or be aware of it, but just to kind of, like, ease you into it. And then if you get saved, it's just, it's there. Because your brain, I guess, isn't going to get rid of it for whatever reason. Yep. It's just an interesting phenomena that so many people across cultures and countries and religions have experienced so mm-hmm. it doesn't discriminate it just it's a very human experience and if you're interested in learning more about near-death experiences there's a very good show on netflix that's extremely uh realistic and it, it gets right to the heart of it it's called the oa and it's so, so good and it's it's completely 100 percent definitely what an NDE is like in real life. And Becca can attest to that because she willingly watched like two or three episodes with me and she loved it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. loved it? I loved it. <laughs> I really like the OA. It's a mess. It's a goddamn mess, but I I get... I get so worked up when I'm watching it. It has its issues, but I get I get all all teary-eyed. I haven't watched a show in a long time where I like actually put my hands up to my face and be like, "No, no, no, no. Oh no. What's going to happen? My little babies." I mean, it was good. I never finished it, but I got to the part where they started doing interpretive dance and I I think that was where they lost me. No, that's how that's the it's the movements. They lost me. No, it's so good. How are you going to bring people back from the dead if you can't do dance with the power of dance? I feel like modern medicine, but I mean, I might be just grasping at straws here. They don't have access to it because they're prisoners. I mean, true. So you got to work with what you have. Just, just go peep at it. Just go peek at it. It's really pretty. Just don't look up what the actual meaning of the the name is because you will not ever watch it. Don't look it up. Just go watch it and then look it up. She'll she she'll tell you if you just watch it. Britt Marling will tell you. Such a mistake. No. No, it's right it it's it fits in just so good. It makes perfect sense. I'm going to go rewatch it again. Have fun. You just have so many feelings. You just love it. I know. It's not a bad show. It's a good show. I just need to, like, actually watch it. Yeah, it's not even that long. No, it's not. I. It's just, I don't remember what happened, but I stopped watching that, and I, I never finished Voltron either. So it's not, I don't discriminate. I basically am just like, I'm tired of watching TV, so I'm going to not watch this until maybe four months from now when I'm like, why didn't I finish that? You haven't watched it long enough, you feel like you have to kind of, like, start over parts of it, and then you just, that's what always happens to me with Twin Peaks. I've seen mm-hmm. the first half of Twin Peaks so many times, and then I always quit. It's a little difficult to get through, because David Lynch has a very, but It's like, all about, like, coffee and mystery and murder and weirdos, and that's, like, right up my alley. It is a weird show. I love it, but it is a weird show. <laughs> Did you watch the, the, not the reboot, I guess, but, like, the 
new season or whatever that came out this year? I saw like five of the episodes, but then whatever account that I was using stopped working or I think I did like a free trial, like a week and it had already released that many so i got to watch those but i haven't seen the other episodes i would just see people like on twitter and facebook being like really twin peaks and getting really (laughs) mad and i got worried i was like what's happening yeah i mean i felt that there were a couple of scenes where i was just like what is happening what is happening ryan hasn't seen it we watched all of twin the first uh, or the first season of twin peaks second season and then we watched fire walk with me which Mm -hmm. fire walk with me was harder to get through because there was just a lot of like it was just very upsetting like it's a bummer because it's the week before laura's death and so she's the protagonist and it's just rough like it's it's horrible i mean it's really like good like it's a good movie but it's painful there's um it's just you just feel horrible for her just want to save her but you can't but anyways uh you know what we forgot to do on our last one uh any kind of like information on where to find us oops or about reviews oops. or anything like that and on the one before that i think for the it review we forgot to give it braiding <laughs> i give it one and a half <laughs> balloons a pop balloon. How out of how many? Uh, I don't know. Five. Uh, I'd give it three balloons, but the last balloon is like not blown up all the way. I'm gonna I'm gonna change mine. Mine's mine's yeah, basically yeah, same. Mm, one less. There's no deflated it's, balloon. It's just like two balloons. It's gonna depend on what the next one is like. We'll see if I if I put some air in that balloon then, or if you just pop it, put it out of its misery. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I guess a shout out for this week. Ow. Did you say no? I said ow. I, I, my oh, leg was, I thought you said- my leg was stuck to my chair and I lifted it off and I, it was stuck and it felt bad. I thought you just whispered, no, no, no shout out. No shout out. You're the only person who knows anybody who listens to this show. I know and I'm running low. I have like two more, two and a half maybe. I don't maybe. have any other than Rachel, I think. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for sending cute things to Becca that then she shows to me and I get really excited about. I I looked all over the place for that one meme that she said reminded her of Judith. Oh, the... the like the Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> one where it's like, once you get to know me, I'm an insufferable <laughs> individual with a dirty mouth. Yep. But I couldn't find it anywhere. All I got was a lot of images of Yu-Gi-Oh! When I tried to type in, I'm a terrible person, Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. And if you listen to the show, like Rachel, and you enjoy it, you should leave us a review on iTunes. Or go subscribe to us on Twitter, at Ghost Emoji Show, so you can get updates when we post new episodes. And sometimes we post little articles about ghosty stuff that we find. And by we, Taylor means Taylor. <laughs> Taylor means it's a ghost. I've never touched that Twitter in my life. <sighs> yeah, that's right. It's a it's a ghost. It's, it's a little ghost emoji. It's not Taylor Astral projecting out of her body and controlling the ghost and making mm-hmm. it post things. Yup. What are we going to talk about next week? You know, I was thinking next week would be... Uh, I like fun is not the right word for it, but I thought it would be cool to do the that one guy from Houston, from our hometown, who uh, started the whole poison pixie stick craze. Mm, that guy. For Halloween. Our legacy. H-Town. Represent. Poisoned pixie sticks. But that's my recommendation. I don't know if that's what we'll do or not, but that's my recommendation for this this festive month we're in the middle of right now. Love Halloween. Mm-hmm. Still waiting on my Twin Peaks waitress outfit. I gotta go buy trim for my final Pam collar. But uh, other than that, it's coming together. I'm very excited. I'm also very excited. Oh, I still need to buy an axe, too. Oh, that's important. You can't not. Yeah. You can't skimp on the axe. I know. My fists aren't strong enough to, to carry for Pam. I'm gonna have to, to go buy. Go buy thing. I really wanted... There's this cherry pie purse that Betsy Johnson made a few years ago, and I can't mm-hmm. find it anywhere except for... I don't I don't even think I could find it on eBay, and I was like, man, that would be perfect. It would be perfect. That would be really good. There's a waffle purse for the Eleven costume. What? At Spirit Halloween. Yeah, because Brittany's gonna be uh, Eleven. And so we were looking for it when we were at Spirit the other day on our lunch break. 
and they didn't have it. But they have it at the one by me. Well, that's good. At least she can get it somewhere. Yeah, I was like, that's something that would be really cute, even not at Halloween. Yeah. But is just very cute for that that outfit. I want to get that for Leslie. Oh, man. I got to go get it. <laughs> Shit. I got to go right now. Bye. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? They might still be open. Do they stay open till 11? I don't know. It's Saturday. Time to party. Go get yourself a, a, a waffle purse. Milk tea and a waffle purse. Yeah. Last night we went and got milk tea at 11. Yeah, it was 11. Yeah. We walked in at like 11.10. They closed at 11.30 and they seemed excited for us to be there. So they were. It was their soft opening. They yeah. liked your over the garden wall yeah. shirt. Everyone had a good time. It was a good time. And we left. We didn't stay. So they were like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> Anyways. Mm, it was very good. Yeah, we need to wrap it up. We're at like 120 minutes. And I don't know how much of this I can actually cut. 120? We uh, we're at an hour and 19 minutes. Sorry. I was thinking I 19, 119. So I was just thinking 120. Don't lie to our viewers. Uh, I mean, listeners. I'm not... I'm not lying. It's a, it's a one hour and 19 minutes, which in my brain turned into 119, rounded up to 120. Okay, take us out. Take us out. Take us uh, out. Um, How do I do that? What do I do? What do we say? Stay spooky. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll do it. And I'm going to be cheerful. I'm going to be cheerful AF. That's going to do it for us today. And until next time, stay spooky. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.